Um, so a little bit of introduction. Um, it's always interesting being the guest speaker. It's kind of like, for the first five minutes, it's kind of like the guest speaker has like a British accent, so you listen a little closer because it's something a little fresh. So I know I need to really capture your attention these first five minutes. Um, I know that's not true. But just a little bit of introduction. I'm Mark Heilman. My wife is Diana. She's on a trip with a friend that had been planned for quite a while. We have been here at Union Hill Church since the 1st of October, uh, the very first Sunday that Ben started in the book of Mark on the Upside Down Kingdom. For us, Union Hill has always been field church. For us, Union Hill has always been Friday night church food truck. That's just what Union Hill Church is for us. There have been gobs of people that we've not met that we look forward to meeting, but for us, church has been outside, open air, sky and trees, and then in, you know, kind of December to March, the other elements as well. Um, but it has also been emerging friendships, great appreciation for teaching and how God is allowing us to serve and, and learn here as well. So uh, Mark and Diana, and very glad to, to be here, very glad to be able to share with you this morning. Um, probably one of my favorite days of being at Union Hill was uh, February 14th. Uh, when Jeff and Rory and I um, cooked outside, I think Jeff for like 14 hours and I helped for four or five hours and it had snowed and there's smoke and there's meat and Gracie the dog and it was just great to be able to sit for four or five hours and get to know Rory, get to know Jeff a little bit more. And very much along that same line, I would ask the question, have you ever thought that you knew someone fairly well until... Maybe you played a competitive game with them, and it's like, oh, there is also this that's part of the package. Or maybe you went to lunch, and the lunch ended up not being 75 minutes, but three hours, just because of something that you shared or they shared, and it just went longer and deeper and just learned a lot about that person that you just didn't anticipate. Or how about this? That you went on vacation with someone that you had never traveled with before, uh, Diane and I did this about 10 years ago. We had two other couples when we lived in Lincoln, Nebraska that we had known for quite a while. We'd known them for 10 years. And uh, I worked with both of the guys. We knew each other pretty well as families. We'd done graduations and weddings and stuff. But then we started planning a trip to New York City and pretty quickly realizing um, that there were some real value and comfort differences between us as couples and individuals, like how adventurous are we going to be uh, as we pick restaurants? Are we just going to uh, TGI Fridays in, in Times Square? Had to kind of work through that a little bit. Are we inexplicably going everywhere by taxi or are we gonna take the subway like normal people? Um, I learned in planning that trip that you do not say to your friends, uh, okay, if one of you gets stabbed, then we can take a taxi the rest of the trip. And these are huge guys. I mean, they're like huge Scandinavian guys. It's like, who's going to be afraid of you all? Um, we had some good memories, and I think probably if they were telling this story, and maybe they are on this Sunday morning, um, they would tell it in a different way than I do. But all of us learned some uh, less flattering things about each other, and it really deepened our relationship. Being in a different setting with less structure or more structure maybe less stress or more stress, really can reveal aspects of our personality and our character and our expectations that can hopefully help us to understand one another better and hopefully also bring us closer together. 
So as we continue through the book of Mark in this upside down kingdom, we come to a portion where Jesus pulls back from large public gatherings and miracles. And as they walk, he focuses on some very specific and really crucial training for the disciples apart from the crowds. And that's what's happening in Mark 9. So if you want to turn or flip or tap there to Mark 9 and verse 30 is where we're going to start. They're on an extended journey through various cities and heading toward Jerusalem. And they hear some very hard truth from Jesus. And we see the disciples' emerging faith crash into their very human and very selfish expectations. And we see Jesus continue to know and love and shepherd them, very much like the song that we sang at the end, that his love never ends. It goes on and on. Um, you know, as we turn to Mark 9, there's kind of the thought when you kind of, you know, are dropped into a series. I really like to continue on with what the series is. So your thoughts are kind of in the stream of where Ben has been and, and has we have gone through Mark. But I selected this passage and... Um, for a couple of reasons, but in the back of my mind is I don't want anything too controversial and I don't want anything that's too convicting about me. Um, the reality is that's just not possible. I mean, taken seriously, every passage in the Bible is controversial and convicting. It just, it just is. They are all important and none of them do we get to control and say, I have accomplished this. I can teach you all things from my life and experience that you should follow me consistently, but rather to follow Jesus. So starting in Mark 9 and verse 30, says this, they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. There's a lot of walking. There's a lot of passing through lots of cities. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the son of man, referring to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So we, hear, so we see here that Jesus is sharing with the disciples what's going to happen over the next several days. It's a couple weeks. It's happening pretty soon. He's going to die and he is going to rise from the dead. In fact, this is the second time in the book of Mark, just right here very close to each other, that on, to the way to, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus has alerted the 12 to what is about to happen. In the previous chapter, Mark 8, Jesus tells them essentially the same thing about what will unfold before them in Jerusalem, what they're going to be part of, what they're going to see, what's going to change. And Peter clearly understood what Jesus was prophesying. And back in, in Mark 8... Jesus tells the disciples again, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise. And Peter clicks into rebuking Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus. This is Peter that has uh, seen Jesus heal Peter's own mother-in-law. Peter has felt the sea in the boat calm underneath him. Felt it just by Jesus saying, peace, be still. Hush, be still to the sea. Peter has been part of Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people. He's walked on the water by Jesus' command and power. He's experienced Jesus seeing into his heart and knowing what Peter was thinking. And Peter has boldly acknowledged when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. 
Peter knew that Jesus was the promised one. But it's this man, Peter, who has witnessed Jesus' power and wisdom that takes Jesus aside. I mean, how do you do that? How do you take Jesus aside? I mean, do you kind of, I've done this in my job a lot of times, kind of taking people like you, you care for them and you're kind of being nurturing and nice, but kind of put your hand in the middle of their back and kind of move them aside. Is that what Peter did? Did he put his hand on Jesus' back and moved him aside from everybody else and says to Jesus, you are wrong. You cannot, you will not do that. I don't know exactly what Peter said, but Peter rebuked Jesus and said, this is your plan. This is my plan. You need to do my plan. Jesus, I rebuke you. I mean, for me, even saying those words just, you know, just feels blasphemous. So Peter rebukes Jesus for promising to fulfill God's plan. In the next chapter of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus again says the same thing to the disciples, that he will die and he will rise again. And the response that time, James and John, two of the disciples, say these words to the creator of heaven and earth. They say this, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Whatever we ask of you, we want you to do this for us. It seems possible, based on these three plain statements by Jesus, that they did understand what he was predicting. They know the Old Testament prophecies, but they each seem to, the 12 of them, have a clear vision of an immediately grand earthly kingdom that they're going to have a a monumental role in, a role for for their own sakes. So they could not understand, could not understand How is Jesus' repeated statements about death and resurrection, how could they possibly mesh with what they wanted to have happen? Their firm belief of how this Messiah should reign and how the kingdom that they had imagined could possibly include a suffering Savior. That's just too upside down to understand. That's too upside down to want. So after this prophecy, the third time in Mark 9, Prophecy by Jesus. What is their instinctive response? Well, Jesus asked them in verse 33. They came to the city of Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked the 12 disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 12 guys arguing about, after Jesus has dropped some really important theology They're arguing about who is the greatest. So there are three responses to Jesus' clear and monumental teaching about his death and resurrection. First, Peter rebukes Jesus. Secondly, all of the disciples argue among themselves about their respective rank in the kingdom. And thirdly, James and John demand that Jesus submit to their wisdom. And in the face of their stunning self-focus, what does Jesus do? Jesus continues to teach them. He continues to love them and shepherd them, to teach lessons that they will eventually get and will eventually live out to our great benefit. In this home in Capernaum, Jesus gathers the 12 disciples around, has them sit together, and he sits among them as our teaching rabbi. And he says this in verse 35. And you know this phrase, as I start into it, just like, yep, I, I know that. I, I've heard that. That's, that's in the Bible. That's Christian stuff. That's Jesus stuff. 
But hear these words and kind of keep in mind what the disciples have done. They've rebuked, they've argued, they have demanded of Jesus. And Jesus says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Can really pretty easy words. We could memorize those pretty quickly and maybe you have. But in other words, Jesus is saying to them, you are not to be people that rebuke, don't argue, and don't demand. If you love and trust me, serve others. And not just the folks that are appreciative or the folks that have like crystal clear motives, but serve all, be the servant of all, are the exact words of Jesus. Last week, Ben talked about good hermeneutics and not to read into or extrapolate Make applications to yourself, but don't extrapolate what the passage might say. There's no conjecture here. Jesus says, be the servant of all. As you start your day and throughout all of your days, develop this mindset, who will God have me serve? This account should make it clear to us that it's not unique to our generation to be stunningly self-focused. We have platforms that reach global audiences But these are men that had pointed and personalized instruction from God himself face-to-face with like really good visuals on serving and sacrifice. And actually Jesus modeling that, doing that throughout his three years of earthly ministry. But like all humans before them and after them, there is a visceral commitment in us to be right and to be honored to negate the need to serve people or to honor a deity that we cannot control. Looks different on each of us, uh, but our drive to self-promote is not a shock to our God, is not a shock to Jesus. Most of us have a persona or a reputation in the groups that we choose to be a part of. For me, in most gatherings, and particularly in my job, I have found it easiest and most gratifying to be known as the sensitive guy and the people gatherer sensitive, gather people. I probably can't explain this well, so please insert your own struggle here. I am convicted that God is not impressed with my presentation as nice or collaborative, but I am convinced that he would rather for me to be servant of all than to be nice. Again, Jesus' direction to us, to me, is serve them all. Only he can shepherd me to a maturity and emotional health that leads me to being servant of all in appropriate ways. I mean, we can interpret what it means to be servant of all and do that in a really unhealthy way. But only Jesus can lead us to a place where we can do that in a way that's healthy, that's really about him, not about us, and has good boundaries. To illustrate the point, Jesus has a child come to him, receives the child and sits the child on Jesus' lap, And Jesus says this, whoever receives one child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, meaning God, the Father. So there's something about serving and serving the least that Jesus says, this is about me. There is a spiritual thing that happens when you serve. When you serve someone that isn't easy for you or someone that's a surprise or someone that takes profound work. As he does throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus pointedly counters the culture. As I understand during this time, 
Uh, children were viewed as a burden, an annoyance, probably not by everyone. But Jesus views this child as an individual and as a person of great worth and says to the disciples, even though children cannot do anything for you, they cannot add to your whatever the contemporary um, children can't Venmo anything to you. Okay. Children just, they don't have that, that capacity. And he directs the disciples to serve in the same way as he has by being people that are determined to receive others and to meet needs. So the plainest of summaries of this account in Mark 9, 30 to 37 is this. Just days before its fulfillment, Jesus tells the disciples the hardest of truth. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Next, they persist in being self-focused and trying to overcome, trying to negate Jesus' plan. And thirdly, Jesus continues to love and teach and shepherd them. So how did it turn out for the disciples? Well, we know a lot of the story. We know what happened in the weeks ahead. We know what happened in Jerusalem. We know what happened on the cross. We know what happened at the tomb and resurrection and uh, Acts 1. We know a lot of things that happened through the book of Acts. But one, Peter, who had been part of this discussion of rebuking and arguing, 30 years later, we can look at, we can look at and see what he wrote 30 years later, likely in his mid-60s. After this account, now his letters are part of the Bible. And those letters reveal a person that has matured into great thoughtfulness and spiritual depth and service. So from 1 Peter 2, keep in mind, this is Peter who has rebuked Jesus. He has struck out with a sword at a soldier who is taking Jesus to his crucifixion. He has denied Jesus three times. And Peter says this, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2. Peter, who hated the idea of the crucifixion, says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You are continually straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The strongest application for me from Mark 9 is what Jesus says and does. But as far as doing something, I, I, I see what Peter did, how he responded to Jesus' grace. As he became an old man by the great, I underline he like I'm, I'm identifying with him as an old man. So I guess that's as he became an old man and as I'm becoming an old man, by the grace of God, Peter became better. He was sage and serving. He didn't speak in these like three-word blasts, not so, Lord. He didn't do that anymore as far as what we can tell. But he wrote and he thought and he spoke in thoughtfully descriptive phrases. If you read through First and Second Peter, there are things that Peter writes that are like, wow, this is just really colorful language. And he's talking about gold and, you know, just things that are like, wow, he has given real observation and thought to this. And he's sharing things with us as his legacy, legacy through the Spirit of God. And contrasting to his early history, Peter is stable and wise and filled with hope. Um, there is a passage that I didn't jot down here that I need to look up, and hopefully I'm going to have here just immediately, uh, from 1 Peter 4. Here's what Peter says. So we heard what he just said about the crucifixion and resurrection. By his wounds we have been healed. 
Here's what Jesus or what Peter says um, in 1 Peter 4 about service that Jesus tried and tried and eventually was successful in teaching. Peter says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter, rebuking Jesus for the crucifixion, not wanting to serve, arguing about who is best, connects the grace of God and service and to the glory of God forever and ever. What are the applications for you from this passage? Um, That's between you and Jesus, between you and the Spirit of God. But a start could be for all of us being honest about how we rebuke God for his plan, for we, how we sometimes argue for higher rank, even if it's in our brains, and how we demand our own way. Even if we do that with a smile, inside we can still be scheming and the exact opposite of servants. Um, you know, one of the advantages of kind of having pretty narrow slits for eyes, I can roll my eyes and almost nobody knows it except my wife. Um, And I have got kind of an internal eye roll that I am working on so hard. I mean, I hear so many, I'm really assuming that people in Bellevue are not going to see this. I hear so many absurd things almost every day. And my eye roll, I am, that's part of the thing of going back in person. It's like, my whole body is going to be seen as we have difficult conversations. And they deservedly should do the same to me. But that internal eye roll, that internal contempt, that internal rebuke toward people and even worse toward God, we can do with a smile and internally not be the people that we would like to appear that we are. Also, another application could be that we choose to literally or figuratively walk with friends and know them better. Extend the relationship. When you have the opportunity to you know, to grill out longer, or somebody says, come walk, or, or you have the thought to go through me, it's like, they are a plausibly cool person. We should do more together. Do it. Do it. If you have those thoughts that the Spirit of God prompts, he's probably not going to say they're plausibly a cool person, but he may prompt you to say, more time with that person. You need them. They need you. I've provided them to be in your life. Be a little more vulnerable, Initiate a day trip with somebody you barely know. Go to lunch with somebody that you haven't gone out with for a while and, and have a, a little bit more personal conversation. Jesus walked with the disciples for many reasons, but I believe there can be real value in slowing down and making the conversation on the journey as valuable as the destination. Another application could be looking to the future like Peter, who looked to the future with hope and not with dread, as he matured. Because we are walking with and are known by Jesus. We are accepted in the beloved. As, period, as, period, as Peter experienced and documented, Jesus is willing. Peter experienced this. Jesus is willing to be the shepherd and guardian of your soul. And each of us need him to be our soul's shepherd and guardian. Final consideration for application. Discuss with somebody, what does it mean to be a servant of all? I really struggle with that phrase, the servant of all. And it's not 
a command. It's not a direction with wiggle room. Servant of all, what does that mean? Uh, for me, lots of times it means listening better and not just appearing like I'm listening, not thinking about the clever thing I'm going to say, but listening and letting there be a pause for somebody to say something more and not just opportunity for me to talk. Um, it means sharing. It means being a little bit more vulnerable, uh, proportional to the relationship. Um, and it means receiving help. Um, I talk to a lot of people in my job and say, oh, my neighbors are not very friendly. One of the things that is best to do with new neighbors is, one, offer help. But if you're moving into a new neighborhood, receive help. As Christians, when God provides somebody to help you, if you can, unless they are just like a dangerous person, if somebody offers to help you, say yes. Don't circumvent or truncate somebody's prompting and desire to help and serve you. Somebody offers you something good, they offer to serve you, let them do that. Because for most people, that's kind of a stretch of faith to offer to help. Um, I've really had to discipline myself to do that, of saying yes to people helping. Honestly, it's easier for me to do things than it is to receive help from other people. Does that make sense? Give me like three or four people that identify with that. So I would say, you know, there's a passage in scripture that says when, when it's within your power to do good, do it. I think for many of us, when, when it's within your power to receive good, know that that's a gift from God. And people are not just doing it haphazardly. They're responding to God's voice. Uh, there are just a few of you uh, that know the most tender parts of my story. There's 59 years of it. So there's some ups and downs. I identify with the arrogance and failures of Peter. But I do know that God is capable of maturing each of us into people that love the gospel, really love the gospel. No, not just, I'm a Christian, I come to church. I love the gospel. I need what Jesus did. And I know that he is capable of maturing me and us into people that serve others in ways that show that we belong to him.